This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Uh, I, uh, I've been sick for the last 10 days. Um, I don't know what I got, uh, started on, started on Thursday. I don't know where I picked it up at, but I haven't really been this sick in a long time. And then it kind of progressed when I finally went to the doctor, you know, I'm like the kind of guy that has the spot on his lung, but doesn't go to the doctor until the stage four. So when I finally went to the doctor, I found that it was pneumonia, which is much easier to handle than the flu. And so, um, I've had this unique opportunity over the last 10 days to be able to do nothing. I mean, literally, uh, I would take these very long naps. I would, um, I just, I didn't feel like doing anything. And because of that, all my to-do list never got done. I'm a big list kind of guy and I pile on myself more than any human can do. I, you know, tonight I'll make a to-do list of all the stuff I want to do tomorrow, assuming there's 40 hours in tomorrow to get them done. I never accomplish them all. And, and there's always that constant pressure I have of things I need to do or, or this teaching I need to listen to or these chapters I need to read or just stuff in general. But over the last 10 days, I haven't been able to do any of that. And so I just resigned myself to the fact that I'm just going to sit back and rest. And so I had an opportunity to do some stuff that I haven't done in a while. I was able to watch some mindless television uh, during the day. Happens to be the uh, impeachment trial. Uh, that was going on. And, and then I would click between watching the live impeachment trial to going to Fox News to seeing their take on it and then going to CNN, who must have been watching some other thing than I was watching and seeing their take on it. And, and it was um, it was kind of chilling. Um, I began to reflect more on the times in which we live, the, the signs of the times. And the Lord really showed me something that... Um, in this last 10 days of illness that I'm kind of excited about showing you today. And, and some things in my mind got cleared up that I've always struggled with, such as how does a member of someone's own household become their enemy because of Christ? Now, I know that, um, you know, I know my brother and I have diametrically different views about the end times, and yet I, I, I don't think he'd ever turn me in to have me tortured or killed. Stuff of that nature. I know there are some relationships in a marriage where you have, you know, one person is more hostile towards the gospel than others. But how do you, how is your hatred for Christ? How does that transcend your love for your kids and your love for your family? And it always bothered me. It all, I just, it, you know, I, I see it written in there and I know it's going to happen, but it just, it, it bothered me. How, how is that possible until this week? And this week, uh, I clearly saw it. It was laid out in front of me. Um, and it is rather a sinister move on Satan that I'm going to share with you in, uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, as some of the signs of the times in which we see. And the Lord convicted me of the fact that, that Jesus chastised the Pharisees, the religious establishment, then just common folks like you and I, by being able to determine the weather, but not being able to see the signs of the times. Here's what he said. This is an old sailor's adage here. When it is evening, you say, 
it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites. Called them hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. Now, the context here is the Jews were asking for a sign from him, and he, of course, said no sign is going to be given because you should be able to determine the signs the signs of the times in which we live. This last 10 days, I really sat down and reflected on this a lot. I, I listened to a lot of stuff I haven't had time to listen to. I, I watched the news live for longer than I have in, in years, probably, and I'm begin to see some of these signs that had eluded me before. For example, in Isaiah chapter 6, if you'll notice, in Isaiah chapter 6, of course, he's called to be a prophet. And he he hears this, this statement being made in uh, verse number 8. This was not a call to Isaiah. It was just a statement made. And he said, um, Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, and he's not pointing this to Isaiah. He just says, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And then Isaiah said the classic passages, here I am, Lord, send me. And he said to go tell these people. And if you'll read the rest of this chapter, it 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 is a message of judgment. I mean, who will go to my people? Isaiah will go and here's the message you're going to bring. And it is bad. It is it's a horrific message. But the call for Isaiah to share God's message began in chapter 5. So I want you to turn to chapter 5 real quick. This is the story, of course, the Lord's Vineyard. Um, Begins by saying, let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about people called by his name. And he goes on to talk about that for the first seven or eight verses. And we get to verse number 8, of course. He begins to lay out for them some woes. And these woes that Israel was struggling with that prompted Isaiah to come and bring a message of judgment are the same woes that we as a nation and as a people and as believers have too. First woe, materialism. Verse number 8. Woe to those who join house to house They add field to field, so there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. And he goes on to talk about what's going to happen to those people who are absolutely devoted to wealth and to materialism and the fact that everything in their world exists today. Verse number 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night till wine inflames them. This is hedonism. This is the idea that it's all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about what what makes me happy. And the scripture here talks about a big woe to that. The next one we find in, um, in verse number 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope. In other words, there's sin out there, and I'm just bringing it to myself and drawing it to myself. There's this flaunting of sin. We've seen this over the last 20 years with the homosexual movement. It's not enough that you as as Christian believers just accept them for who they are. Instead, we have to sanction their sin as a civil right. 
which happened in 2015 with the Supreme Court ruling with gay marriage. Verse number 20, denial of the word of God. There is no finite standard anymore in the land. Woe, verse 20, to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, and who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So we're not looking at at the word of God anymore as the finite word. Instead, it's up to you to decide what works for you. And it's okay to call evil good and good evil as long as you say it loud enough and you have the media backing you up. Because everything is based on relativism. There's no finite truth anymore. Verse number 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And if that wasn't enough, these personal woes, then all of a sudden it begins to bleed out in the land where there is no justice, there is no right and wrong. The institutions of God, the church, the institutions of civil government, um, the, the court systems have completely abrogated the responsibility of justice. Verse number 22. Woe to, um, woe to men mighty at drinking wine, Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicated drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. I'm looking at this and I'm seeing this call of Isaiah that the Lord calling us today, who will I send with this message? Who will go for us to proclaim the truth out here in this hedonistic flaunting of sin with no finite word of God culture in which we live? And I realize that these are the signs of the times in which we live right now, especially this one. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. I know it's wrong. I know it's a lie, but it doesn't matter because I have an agenda. I have a purpose that transcends truth. Truth is no longer something to be discovered and believed. Truth is a club that I use. That's relativism. It's my truth, and you have your truth in order to pursue what I want to pursue as a hedonist. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Why? Because I am wise in my own eyes, and I'm prudent and smart in my own sight, because it's all about me. You know, we've talked for years about living in the Laodicean church age. And it hit me this week. I mean, it just hit me this week. I guess all my life I've always viewed church and culture or church in the secular world as somewhat separate. And so here's what happens in the church world. You know, in the Philadelphia church age, the church world is acting contrary to the culture. They're following God. They're believing God. They're loving each other. Great missionary movements began. But in the Laodicean church age, where there's nothing good said about it, the church now becomes like the world. The world is hedonistic. The world is selfish. The world is narcissistic. The world has a faulty view of who they are. You think that you're rich and wealthy and need nothing Revelation chapter 3, but I, the Lord says, see you as naked and blind and wretched. And the fact is, is what happens in this Laodicean church age is we become so much like the world that we're indistinguishable. Hence, we're lukewarm and the Lord wants to vomit us out of his mouth. Do you remember this? Remember this? All my life, I've never seen anything that was this big a travesty. I mean, you had a, a Supreme Court nominee 
whose life was virtually ruined by a news media and a political party who absolutely refused to believe anything that was not contrary to what this man said. Out of nowhere, this lady pops up, and I feel I feel sorry for her. She was kind of a victim in this. This lady pops up, and she comes up with a story that happened. He was 15 years old. You know, and what 15-year-old has a journal of all the events he did during the summer? You know what I mean? And so you would interview... Um, you would interview these Democratic senators and House members, and they would say, well, I know she's telling the truth because she's a woman. And women don't lie, and men lie. No, she's telling the truth because her telling the truth fits your narrative. It fits your agenda. And it was, it was horrific. It was, do you remember it? It was, it was sickening to watch this. Go on and on and on and on, these unsubstantiated allegations. And every time it looked like this man's integrity was beginning to show forth, some tabloid would report something else about some women, woman who said something that he did. I mean, it was unbelievable. The media just jumped on it because truth is not important anymore. We're going to call evil good and good evil. Because not having this man confirmed to the Supreme Court, according to them, was more important than anything. Do you remember? Now, you younger people don't remember this. But us that are a little older, we saw this thing happen with a man named Clarence Thomas. And all of a sudden, there was this college professor named Anita Hill who made a comment or said that he made some sort of off-color sexual comment to her in the workplace. And, you know, if what he said was true, it was really bad, out of taste. And then all of a sudden, she became the hero, and, and they just beat this man to death. And I remember I'm watching this, and, and, and this was, what, 30 years ago? I'm watching this, and, and, um, and Clarence Thomas is a good guy. And it was amazing. It was an incredibly strategic good move on his part. So Anita Hill's up there testifying, and she's laying out all the garbage, and they're just lapping it up. Oh, this guy's dead. This guy's toast. I can't wait till we bring him in here and have him try to justify the allegations that are being made against him, even though those are hearsay. They're not even admissible in court. And Clarence Thomas came in, and I remember it was Joe Biden. I think it was Joe Biden. One of them asked him and said, so what do you say to these allegations made against you? And he goes, I didn't listen to them. What? Yeah, I'm not going to even bother listening to those things. And then he came out with his, you know, this is just a high-tech lynching, and he was able to be confirmed. I believe he was able to be confirmed because he was a man of color. And even a white guy, the high-tech lynching wouldn't have had any power, and he would have been Borked, who was another guy that this was done to just prior to that. You guys my age, remember all that? Truth means nothing anymore. And we ignored that. And then we, you know, ignored the Kavanaugh thing. And then we had this travesty. I mean, this was, this was, this has taken life to a new level. We've got people up here that are just flat lying. I mean, they're lying and they're swearing it's true and they're refusing to, to give even the rights of discovery or the rights to face your accuser to the president of the United States. And if anybody says anything of their opinion that agrees with them, they're able to present hearsay on a stand, but then there's no rebuttal witnesses. I mean, it was, it's, it's horrific. Now, Kavanaugh was confirmed because there were more Republicans than there were Democrats. And, of course, this failed by one vote. 
uh, to call more witnesses and bring this thing on because there were allegedly more Republicans than there were Democrats. But the time will come when all this will change. Pretty soon the Democrats will have the White House and they'll have the, the Senate and the House of Representatives. And then what's going to happen? Because truth matters nothing any, uh, anymore because it's all about this agenda. It's all about my desire and my want. It's, it's all about what I think is right. And you have the news media running lockstep in all of this. I'm a, um, I'm a, uh, a participant in Samaritan's Ministries. And I have been for many, many years. It's a, it's a medical sharing plan. It's been around for 25 years. How many other people here use Samaritan's Ministries? A lot. A uh, medical sharing plan that uh, allows us to pay each other's bills. It's very Christ-oriented. In order to get in, you have to agree to a statement of faith, and you can't be involved. You can't do drinking and, you know, and stuff of that nature. And your pastor, your church elder, has to certify your church attendance in order to be a member. It's a, it's a really good program. Well, the New York Times decided that they would interview a couple and Samaritan's Ministry, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, in order to I'll kind of tell a little bit more about what the ministry is like. And it was an absolute hit piece. I mean, it was a slam piece. They totally misrepresented the couple. They totally misrepresented the ministry. The couple has come out and has written the New York Times and said, you know, this was a, this was totally wrong. You guys, you know, said things that aren't true. Uh, you have made falsehoods against this ministry and against my family personally. And the New York Times says we're standing behind our reporting because obviously they know the couple's story better than the couple does. It's happening. It's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to the, it's going to happen to us. It's going to happen to church in general or Christianity in general because it's pretty much the way we are moving right now. And why is that? Well, in John 3, you've got this classic passage. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we have a tendency of stopping there. But there's a little more to Jesus' teaching here. He says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But yet there is a condemnation that's on the world. And we find that in verse number 19. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil, this is an action involved here, hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth, again, there's an action involved here, comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. I mean, the world is going to hate you because of what you do because of the Holy Spirit that lives within you. And Satan's biggest attack is going to try to make you like the world. I want to, you know, bad company corrupts good character, but, but not in my situation. You're deceived. Well, uh, you know, I want to have... Everything that the world offers me, but still want to hold on to my Christianity, friendship with the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. It's a choice. And so what Satan wants to do is not stamp out our life because he can't. Christ alone, no one can snatch us from his hands. But the fact is he wants to diminish our light by letting us be polluted by the world. And the pressure is intense out there. Here is... Um, 
Here's where my blinders came off. I, I've read this a hundred times, preached on it half a dozen times, but it really became real to me as I began looking at some of the signs of the end. It says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Not here, right now, but maybe in other countries. Then many will be offended and they'll betray one another and hate one another. They will be offended because of Christ and they will turn someone in, betray someone, stab someone in the back, violate a trust relationship because of their hatred. Then it says many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. We've always interpreted false prophets as being proclaiming false narratives of Christ. But it's false prophets are a prophet is someone who hears from God. And a false prophet may be someone who claims this is godly, yet it is not. So what's the end result of all this? Lawlessness, recklessness, lack of justice. And because lawlessness will abound, the agapeo, not the filio, but the agapeo of many will grow cold. Lawlessness is so great that my love for others, my love for my family, my love for my God, for my spouse, for my country, my love for anything of value now grows cold. Because the only thing that I do love is me. The only thing that I think is important is what I think. It's what I want because the whole world is focused on me. And of course, during this time, it says he who endures to the end will be saved. This is a biblical description of narcissism. Narcissism was something that was unheard of when I was studying psychology in school. It, it wasn't even a bona fide mental illness. And now narcissism is the purge of our land right now. Narcissism means that you're the most important thing in your life, that everybody is designed to serve you, that you will manipulate and that you will you will hate that you will betray you will do whatever's necessary to exalt the one thing that means more to you than anything which is you you is the antithesis of being a christian and many of us as believers may be in grave danger our children are in grave danger because of this because we've let our guard down and we've let certain things into our life that breeds narcissism. Let me, um, let me just give you a quick definition. This is a clinical definition here, some traits of narcissism. This is from the Mayo Clinic. Narcissist, this is how they generally respond. A narcissist has an exaggerated sense of self-importance, which is the whole selfie phenomenon. Hey, I'm at a restaurant right now, and everybody I know wants to know what meal I'm eating. I mean, they do. They're just sitting at home waiting on us. So click, click, click. Here's the meal I have. Hey, look at my meal and tell me what a good guy I am. Really? We do this all the time. A narcissist has a sense of entitlement and requires constant, excessive admiration. I'm going to put makeup on my eyes, and, and I'm going to doll my face up, then I'm going to take pictures of myself and all these different angles and post them on Facebook so strangers and people I don't even know will tell me how pretty I am. And when I'm feeling bad and I'm feeling kind of, kind of down, I'll post these cryptic remarks like, it's been a really dark day today. 
But with God's help, I can get through. Oh, what's going on? What's going on? Let me help you. I just need, I need, I need. Narcissists expect to be recognized as superior, even without achievements that warrant it. They exaggerate their achievements and their talents. One of the things that is rampant in the business world right now is lying and embellishing to the points of falsehood resumes. They're preoccupied with fantasies about success or power or brilliance or beauty or my perfect mate or my perfect life or my perfect kids or my perfect everything. They believe that they are superior and we can only associate with people that are equally special just like us. Everybody else is a loser. Everybody else is somebody that you put down. They monopolize conversations and belittle or look down on people they perceive as inferior. They expect special favors and unquestioning compliance with their expectations. Her dad was a narcissist. I mean, he fit almost every one of these. A lot of pastors fall into this. I remember when Karen and I were, when Karen and I lived in Pigeon Forge, that uh, there were several pastors that we kind of hung around with. And when they would go to Cracker Barrel after church on Sunday, and in Pigeon Forge on Sunday at Cracker Barrel, it is packed. They expected to be seated first, to cut in line, to, that they would recognize them as a pastor or something of that nature. And if it didn't happen that way, some of them I knew would talk to the manager about that, how they were offended. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Which is the exact opposite of what a crisis, Christ is supposed to be. A narcissist takes advantage of others to get what they want. They're keen manipulators. They have an inability or unwillingness to recognize the needs and feelings of others. You're just a, a cog in just a, a tool that I use to achieve what I want to. They're envious of others. I believe others envy them. If you're successful, they will not applaud your success. Instead, behind your back, they will try to tear you down because somehow it makes them feel better. They behave in an arrogant or haughty manner, coming across as conceited, boastful, or pretentious. They insist on having the best of everything. This is a narcissist. And it is, it's absolutely prevalent in our society right now. Who in the world, my generation, if you look in, if you look in, um, somebody my generation, or even a little bit younger than I am, in their picture albums. There are always pictures of things we love. There are pictures of our kids. There's pictures of our, our spouse. There's pictures of our grandparents. There's pictures at, at gatherings like birthday parties where we're taking pictures to capture memories of the people that we love, the things that we love, the, the things that we adore. I want a lasting picture of this so when a friend comes over, I can open it up and I can show it to him and say, yeah, this is my wife. This is my children or my grandchildren. And most pictures taken today and posted online are of you. They're selfies. Yeah, I'm important. Click, 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 click. Why do we do that? Well, because I'm important. I have a sense of self-worth that, you know, I, I'm not a narcissist, but I'm living a culture full of narcissism. And narcissism is such, is relegated to such a high standard today that everybody expects me to, to tell you all about my life. 
I want you to know what I'm doing because I'm important. Here are my pets. Here's the vacation I'm going to. Hey, I just checked in at Target today just so that you would know that's where I am. Gosh, I appreciate that because I was really worried. Haven't heard from you in 12 minutes. I mean, seriously, seriously. And it's the culture in which we live. We have Facebook and Instagram and and I don't know what, Snapchat and all these kind of things where they're just pictures of us. So somebody would like us. We have these personal video channels. Well, you know what? Somebody needs to, they need to watch me play a video game. They need to watch me do something kind of funny. And I have these video channels because people can look at me. They can subscribe to me. They can log on to me. Why? A narcissist are people that have narcissistic tendency crave the attention of strangers more than they crave the attention of God or even their own spouse. And sometimes someone would say, because I get no attention from my spouse, then I seek that attention and self-worth and validation and affirmation somewhere outside of my relationship with Christ and my relationship with my own family. And kids are just... They're just, they're just bought in all this. And as bad as it is for adults today, can you imagine how it's going to be for our children? When everything about them is on video. When I was growing up, actually I was, I was in my 30s, we had a, I had a friend who was a police officer named Bobby. And Bobby, um, Bobby, Bobby had problems. Um, Bobby, whenever he was watching his son at night, he and his son would sit down in front of the television and watch videotapes of Bobby, you know, playing football in high school his senior year. And so, I mean, this guy's now, he's late 20s. He was a police officer, you know, but he, he just couldn't get over that. These are my glory days. So he would sit his son down and like in Friday night after Friday night, they would sit and they would watch VHS tapes back then of him playing football. And we were like, what is wrong with you? I mean, can you get beyond the glories of the past and deal with your kid now and make something of your life now and serve Christ now? But it's nothing. It's nothing for young children to spend hours looking at themselves on videos that they made, laughing hysterically at themselves. And it's going to get worse. And it breeds into this Self-importance, this lukewarm layout of seeing kind of just narcissism that can cause great, great harm. And social media feeds this stuff because it gives you an opportunity to be important in your eyes. But your self-worth and your value has got to come from Christ. Well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm, I'm not like that at all. As a matter of fact, uh, that none of that applies. Really? Go look at the content of most of your pictures, most of your videos. Are those other people? Or are you in the middle of it, smiling and doing this and you know, being cute? And is it if the content of your video is you, there's a problem. And it's a problem that is so prevalent in our society that is gonna be, I believe, the classic in time mental disorder that is gonna allow the enemy to just come in and swoop in. Here are a couple of examples. 
These are your little memes. Pulled a couple of these last night. Best thing I ever did was learn how to be my own friend and separate myself. Of course, this comes from a woman who's been 17 different bad relationships and she's decided not to change. So it's all about me and separate myself. I'm going to be my own friend. It's fine because I know more than anything. Not subscribing to any truth or way other than the pull of your own soul is perhaps the most thrilling, terrifying, and important thing in the world. To your own self be true because it's all about you. It's always these women pictures. <laughs> How do you find self-love? Like that's even important, but okay. How do you find self-love? You dig, you isolate, and you ache from being lonely. You heal, you accept, you look in the mirror and see God. When I look in the mirror, I see a demon many times, you know? <laughs> you see God. Really? Eventually, you'll start calling situations in life coincidences and realize how powerful you are because it's all about you. Last one. I was never addicted to one thing. I was addicted to filling a void within myself with other things than my own love. That sounds so great. See this stuff posted on Facebook all the time. But it would, what are we saying here? How is this even possible? I want to just take a, a couple moments now, if I can, and I want to explain to you how absolutely dastardly, harmful, and hurtful narcissism is. I can share it with you academically. I can tell you some stories about growing up with my dad and some encounters I've had with some people who have narcissistic tendencies. But someone who has been in the fire is someone who can tell you more than I can. So Krista, should I come up? I would much rather share with you academically than share with you my story, but he took that part. Um, you know, we talk a lot about narcissism, and I learned about narcissism about two years ago, um, and it was kind of an eye-opening thing for me. It had The term, honestly, has only been around, like you said, for uh, a couple of years. Um, and it's funny to talk about, you know, you think about narcissism, you think about um, being vain and being awful of yourself. Um, but there's a deep side to narcissism that is painful and far-reaching. And a lot of times it's not what you see when you see social media and you see um, people that are just um, uh, lovers of themselves and and that, you know, only think of themselves. Um, the deep side of that comes when that self-love and that constant need for attention overrides any type of empathy or any type of selflessness or any type of relationship that you could possibly have. And I didn't know that I've lived with that for the past two decades until two years ago when I learned that term I just always knew that something was always off and that something was always just not quite right and I could never measure up and I could never um, bring the happiness that I always wanted and saw in other people um, we were never a team we were always um, always focused on me running around striving to make him happy. 
Uh, and I could, you know, the last two years I've spent going back and dissecting every interaction and every um, part of uh, my marriage and my relationships, trying to figure out what was the truth and what was not the truth. Um, but it's such a harmful thing when taken, when narcissists um, are fully in their self-love and everything's got to be about me and the world revolves around me no matter what toll it takes on anyone. Um, the ugly side to that is they get very angry and they have a lot of rage and righteous or indignation when that is not carried out. And um, uh, I have lived that. I have lived trying to run around and um, make that person happy and to the detriment of myself and the health of myself and thinking that I could do enough or I could I could um, work harder or um, be a buffer to the world to try to um, give that person enough attention so they would finally find happiness and finally be able to give me that love in return and that respect in return. And it never happened. Never happened. And um, when I would come close to finding out the truth or questioning, why is this not happening? Why is what I'm doing not working? Um, the rage would come out. The rage would come out and the anger would come out. Because their biggest fear is that you will find out that they're really insecure and searching and, and that they have to put on this persona of themselves, but they're really, they're really broken inside. And they, they, instead of turning to Christ for that brokenness, um, they refuse to see it and they instead take it out on those they love. Um, when I learned the term two years ago, it was like a light bulb went off and I realized that, um, all my striving was not going to fix anything. It was not. It was an internal problem that was beyond um, my my fix-it mentality, my I can love you through this, my I can be a good influence. Uh, what, really, what really was the kicker for me was seeing my children. And growing up in that household, I always thought, well, I can be a good influence. I can counteract what's happening. I can be the buffer so that the children don't begin to feel the wrath when their needs take the place of someone else's needs, which happens in a big family. You know, um, there's lots of sacrifices have to be made, but those sacrifices were never made. And the rage and the anger um, began to turn on the children. And um, what I began to see was despite my, despite my desire to buffer the children and uplifting comments and encouragement um, wasn't enough. It wasn't enough, um, and they began to exhibit um, a lot of self-worth issues and a lot of anxiety and a lot of anger and rage themselves um, because they didn't understand it. Um, what I've learned in the last two years, uh, well, what I learned when I finally, that light bulb went off and I realized that this was way bigger than me and that by continuing in that relationship and continuing in that environment that was so detrimental to my children, I was actually harming them. And I was actually trying to control everything myself and trying to fix things, and it was unfixable. Um, this disease, this, this mental mindset that 
um, psychologists are now estimating that 30% of Americans um, are on some spectrum of, of having that disorder or those tendencies is rampant and it is, it is not fixable. It is, um, it is hurting children and breaking families up and not just families, work relationships, you know, parents and children, spouses. Um, it's, it's amazing how, how prevalent it is. Um, and there's the only cure for it is to, Cut yourself off from it and just realize that it's harmful and toxic and no matter no matter the influence that you think you're having for the good it, it is an evil thing but it won't happen to you you're being deceived scripture says clearly bad company corrupts good character scripture says that um Scripture has a lot of truth in there that we sometimes have a tendency of not adhering to. The narcissism is upon us. I think it's going to be the ultimate tool Satan's going to use to turn family members against you, to betray you, to turn on you, even because of your faith in Christ. Because their love for themselves or being right or their own agenda or whatever it is will supersede their love for their own children. You see it happen all the time. And the question is, what do we do about it? I am not going to look at the Romans one passage. I'll encourage you to go home and do that. But I do want to, I do want to share one last passage with you in John 9. Listen very carefully. It says, that as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There has to be some logical reason for this situation. And Jesus answered and says, neither, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. He said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, while I can see, why I can understand, why there is still time and opportunity. For night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. By the way, is Jesus still in the world? Yeah. And where is he living? In you. You. There still is a light in the world. But the reality is that we're running out of time. You know, I've been sharing this with you, but it came so clear to me. I mean, uh, I'm not a real basketball fan. But uh, Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter, and another husband and wife and some of their kids and a pilot or whoever it was, they all got on a helicopter because they're going to fly to some game. He, you know, he kissed his wife that morning. We'll see you later on this evening. Nobody knew how it was going to turn out. True? And he got on that plane, and all life changed. Can't go back. I mean, now Kobe Bryant's wife is without him and 13-year-old daughter. And, I mean, it's, everything changed. And it's, it's, just, it's just circumstances that come our way. You, you don't know how to prepare for that. You don't know how to steel yourself against that. But a, a, an event takes place out of your control, and all life radically changes. Karen and I have had the uh, joy of, for the past couple years, it seems, almost, almost coming up on two years, having uh, Shiloh and Josiah, at least for the past since May, Shiloh and Josiah uh, spending every weekend with us. 
They've been here at church with us. You know, we've done some fun things. You notice Josiah is not here anymore, and he won't be coming back because the court ruled on Monday that uh, Brian will have custody, permanent custody of the kids every weekend, every single weekend. For Josiah, it began immediately. For, Josiah, for Shiloh, it will be in a couple weeks as you kind of move into that situation. The circumstances beyond our control, but now that door's closed. Now those situations have, th- th- that opportunity that we have is now gone. So what we have to do is work harder to make other opportunities, to make other changes, to play with the, the cards that we've been dealt, even though as our society grows darker, your cards will be taken away from you one after another after another. You understand what I'm saying? The time is now to do what's necessary for making changes in our life, to be able to teach our family and even ourselves to become more like Christ. When I was growing up, um, I was, oh, I don't even know, eight or nine years old when all of a sudden the invasion came in from England. The Beatles hit Shea Stadium. You had Woodstock in 1969. I was 14 years old. I keep always tell people I met Karen at Woodstock that, that that's a joke. I was 14 years old and you know, and the, the music changed and life changed and all became drugs in the 70s and late 60s and all that kind of stuff. And I remember pastors would stand up in the pulpit and rail, rail against rock and roll music. Rock and roll music will be the destruction of our young people for generations to come. Of course, we didn't listen because we liked the music and we enjoyed it. Tired of the Beach Boys, want to listen to something a little more edgy. And so... You know, we laughed at those pastors who have now since passed on as prophetic beacons of a generation and just laughed at them because that's just a crazy stance to make it. But they were right. They were right. In Gone with the Wind, all of a sudden Hollywood allowed a four-letter word, something incredibly mild to us today, to be able to be proclaimed uh, on the silver screen. And pastors railed against it. This is the beginning of boycott movies. This is just the beginning. Before you know it, you're going to have full nudity and sexual acts that take place on your television set in your living room. And they were laughed at. That's exactly what's happening now. And we pay for it with cable or with a Netflix subscription or stuff of that nature. They were all right. Every single one of them was right. And we pay the consequences for it now because we refuse to listen. My parents refuse to listen. I refuse to listen. Hopefully you won't refuse to listen. You need to get your kids off social media immediately. Absolutely immediately. You should de-emphasize the ability of children to take hours and hours and hours of movies of themselves so they can laugh at themselves and try to be cute and everything. You me need to disassociate ourselves from social media. What an incredible waste of time to sit there and most of the news you get is on social media, but it's just as whacked as the news you, you hear somewhere else. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a satanic tentacle that comes in and moves us in a direction we don't need to go. There will be a time if God doesn't return, there will be a time when the pastors that are telling you this now you will look back and realize the greatest disservice you ever made to your kids 
is allow them to have a Facebook account or a Twitter account so they can post all the stuff that just breeds narcissism. If what the psychologists said are true, 30% of the American public in a matter of 15 years with the birth of social media, 30% of the American public has severe narcissistic tendencies, if not narcissists. What's going to happen five years from now? That percentage will be, what, 40, 45? Which means your daughter has a very good opportunity of marrying a narcissist. And your son is struggling with these, these very issues. We need to be about his business. And I know this puts me in a camp of one of those independent fundamental pastors. But, uh, I, but I suggest you dump the account. I mean, who do I interact with? People, people give me little Facebook things that say, happy birthday on your birthday. You know what I mean? And then you, this is really easy to do because Facebook tells you oh, this person's birthday today. Okay, better go ahead and say happy birthday because I don't have them on a calendar. I'm not going to send them a card. Just make it really easy. And I can spend more time rather than trying to get other people to like pictures of me or pithy sayings that I make, spend more time building his kingdom. Because it doesn't happen on social media. It doesn't happen on Facebook. And your kids will follow your example for good or for bad. So I just want to encourage you. It's been going on with me these last 10 days. Do not... Uh, do not take the situation in which we live right now for granted. Jesus called the, the, the Jews at that time hypocrites because they could discern which direction the stock market is going and benefit from it. But they were unable to discern the signs of the times. Well, if I cancel my Facebook account and my Instagram account and my, I don't know what they're called, chit-chat or Snapchat or whatever, if I cancel off all those accounts, you know, I won't be able to communicate with anybody. Sure you can. How about pick up a phone? Invite him for dinner. Write a letter. And I'm telling you, I, I read a study that said every time you log on to Facebook, it eats up at least a half hour of your day. And sometimes I've you know, got nothing to do to log on to Facebook. And I'm just scrolling down. For what? Never interacting with it. Oh, I like that. Oh, I like that. Did you pray about it and think about it? Because... If this narcissism continues to grow, fed by a preoccupation with self, and these are the very people that are going to be members of your family, they're the very people that are going to betray you, the very people that, um, whose love is going to grow cold for anything other than self, as we see that day approaching. Amen? Let me pray.